sometimes our imaginations drive us into another world that is filled with some kind of super amazing features. You do that, right? I mean, who doesn't think about a world where health is determined by how many calories you can consume? The higher amount of calories, the healthier you are. Please pass the Oreos. Or a world where laundry automatically folds itself. Can I get an amen? Some of you guys have never folded a piece of laundry in your life. Why did you say amen? A world where you can fly. Just yeet yourself up into the air and head on to your next appointments. How cool would that be? Where a successful day, a world where a successful day would be 12 to 14 hours of sleep. Our imaginations can easily take us to another world. Don't do that during preaching time. But there is something else built into each of us. It is partly imagination. But the difference is that it's partly real. We have a longing for another world, a world that is real. But we don't know all the details yet, so our imagination fills in some of the blanks. The choir sang of it this morning, the song, The Yearning. It's a longing that we have to escape the harshness of this sin-cursed world. It's an anticipation of promised rest. Has living in a world cursed with sin, including your own sin, has it left you lethargic, defeated? Has it left you questioning whether you will make it? Has the hardship of this life left you longing for another place? Today we continue our series on Christian lament. If you haven't done so yet, would you please find the book of Lamentations in your copy of God's Word? If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 576. Lamentations is a book of prophecy in the Christian Old Testament. It's not a book that you typically turn to thinking that you're going to be encouraged by reading the book. I mean, the very name, Lamentations, it indicates grief and sorrow. And that matches with our personal experience in this life. We've stated that lament is the process of living between the poles of a hard life and trusting in God's sovereignty. The reality of darkness, the reality of darkness in the life of a Christian calls for the practice of lament in the life of a Christian, resulting in the hope of God in the life of a Christian. Lament calls us to go to God. Lament calls us to complain to God. It's a biblical and unbiblical way to do that. Lament calls us to go to God, to complain to God, to ask of God, and then to trust in God. Lamentations gives us the response of, of the people of Judah to the fall of Jerusalem. The Babylonian army had attacked Jerusalem. The Jews were lamenting the capture and the destruction of the city. And the poet is like a reporter who was on the scene. He's right there, an eyewitness account of what's going on. Lamentations is a book that, that poignantly reminds us that darkness and brokenness 
is a reality in our world. Five poems, five chapters. Chapters 1, 2, 4, and 5 have 22 verses in them. 1, 2, and 4 are acrostics. 5 is not. In chapters 1 and 2, and 1, 2, and 4, each verse begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. But what about chapter 3? Hebrew poetry often puts the most important parts of the message, the most significant elements of the poem, in the center of the poem, in the center of the message. Chapter 3 is is the case. Chapter 3 carries the most important parts of Lamentations. Chapter 3 is also an acrostic, like chapters 1, 2, and 4. However, chapter 3 has 66 verses, so each letter of the Hebrew alphabet gets three, three verses. So each of the three verses begins with the first letter, Hebrew letter. Verses 4 through 6 begin with the second Hebrew, and so forth. So we have triads throughout chapter 3. It's a fascinating and, and complex structure that reminds us of God's creativity and, and God's ability as he's given to us and preserved for us his holy word. It was God's perfect design to include this book in the canon of Scripture, to preserve these five chapters for us. You see, God knew that life for his children would include the reality of hardships. What are we to do? The consequences of sin's curse surround us. Dreams come crashing down. Injustice in our society. Disappointment in in God's design for the makeup of our family, the structure of the family. An unfaithful spouse or an unengaged spouse. Continued temptation to a besetting sin, something that's been with us for years and years and years. Temptation after temptation to the same sin. Or children that grow up and show little interest in God. The never-ending expectations of others upon our life. Depression that seems unexplainable because when others look at our life, they think we have it made. Lamentations 1 taught us that sin and its consequences brings misery into this life. Lamentations 2 taught us to look to the reign or the rule of God. God rules with severity. God rules with justice. God, works with, God rules with purpose. Lamentations 3 then teaches us that we must cling to the truth about God rather than clinging to personal experiences. Lamentations 3 teaches us that perseverance through trials doesn't come through what you are seeing. Perseverance through trials doesn't come through what you are feeling during those trials. Perseverance through trials comes through what you are believing. And believing the truth makes all the difference. Let's think of Lamentations chapter 3 and look at the first 20 verses to begin with. The chapter begins with 
with more detail regarding God's hand of judgment against, the, uh, against his special people, the people of Judah. In fact, as, as we read, as, we, uh, as the chapter opens, it, it sounds like more of the same of what we learned from chapters 1 and 2. And we're, we're going to read it here in just a second. It's a first-person pronoun. It it's almost sounds like the poet is, is accepting the weight of Judah's guilt before God. It reminds me of, of the, the suffering servant in Isaiah chapter 53. So follow along now as I read the first 20 verses of Lamentations 3. I am the man that has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He has led me and brought me into darkness, but not into light. Surely against me is he turned. He turneth his hand against me all the day. My flesh and my skin hath he made old. He has broken my bones. He has builded against me and compassed me with gall and travail. He has set me in dark places as they that be dead of old. He has hedged me about that I cannot get out. He has made my chain heavy. Also, when I cry, cry and shout, he shutteth out my prayer. He has enclosed my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. He was unto me as a bear lying in wait and as a lion in secret places. He hath turned aside my ways and pulled me in pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent his bow and, and set me as a mark for the arrow, a target for the arrow of the bow. Verse 13. He has caused the arrows of his quiver to enter into my reins. I was a derision to all my people and their song all the day. He hath filled me with bitterness. He hath made me drunken with wormwood. He hath broken my teeth with gravel stones. He has covered me with ashes, and thou hast removed my soul far from peace. I forgot prosperity, and I said, My strength and my hope is perished from the Lord. Remembering mine affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall, my soul hath them still in remembrance and is humbled in me. Judah is described as being driven away from God, being in darkness, always aware, being aware that God had turned his hand against him. God had turned away. Did you catch the poet's distress in verses 7 through 9? He felt as though God had built a wall around him and bound him with heavy chains to ensure no escape would come from this judgment that God was pouring out on him. One commentator said it this way, one of life's darkest moments is to experience the absence of God and have one's prayers go unanswered. One of life's darkest moments is to experience the absence of God and to have one's prayers go unanswered. That's how the poets of Lamentations felt. Is that how you feel? Do you feel as if God has built a wall around you? Or as if God is absent? In these opening verses, God is, 
is compared to a beast pouncing on his victim. He's compared to a skilled archer taking deliberate aim. And the picture got worse. The poet says it was as though God had broken the victim's teeth by forcing him to eat rocks, gravel. Verse 17 could be translated, You have deprived me of health. I have forgotten all about happiness. Happiness is far, prosperity, happiness is far removed from me. I don't even remember what it was like to be happy. The poet had reached the lowest of lows. In fact, that's his declaration in verse number 18. My hope in the Lord is perished. It's gone. There is no more hope. My hope is gone. Have you lived in that spot? Have you been in a dark place of darkness, a place of trial, where you feel like your hope in the Lord has perished? My friends, it is a reality of life in this sin-cursed world. Is that how you feel today? Can you feel, can you relate to the poet's experience? Within the walls of this sanctuary, there's been a lot of hurt Desperation, grief, sorrow, disappointment. People who have been brought low. With all the years represented in this room, there have been times when some of you have felt that God had built a wall around you or pounced on you as a beast or forced you to break your teeth while you ate stones. If you were honest, you could even be bold and admit there are times when you're tempted to wonder, is it worth it? Is it worth it? The darkness is so strong. The temptations so fierce. The disappointment so experiential. The trial so relentless that you wonder if it's worth persevering through the trial or even if it's possible to persevere to this trial. And here is where Lamentations 3 takes a turn and teaches you and teaches me that we lose hope when we look at what's around us. We lose hope when we focus on what we are feeling. It's important for us to note that Judah's hope in the coming verses didn't come as a result of changes to their circumstances. We're about to read a word of hope for Judah, but it, it doesn't come because Jerusalem was suddenly restored. Likewise, Judah didn't gain hope because their feelings changed, because they were just instantly happy-go-lucky and, and just happy all of a sudden. No, their hope came based on what they called to mind. Do you see it? It's in verse 21. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The poet says, I have hope, not because of what I'm seeing around me, my circumstances changing. I don't have hope because something is, is, is speeding up and restoration is, is happening faster than that, than what I expected. I don't have hope because of what I'm actually feeling because something is changing in that way. No, I have hope 
because of, what because of what I'm able to call to mind. I have hope because of truth. I have hope because of truths about God. And that, my friend, is the call for you and for me from Lamentations 3. Hold to the truth about God. Claim truth of God. Seek truth of God. Know the truth. When I pray through the, the list of the congregation each week, this is one of my prayers often for you, that you will hold to the truth of God. Not just that you won't be a, a compromiser and, and fall into to sin in this world. Sure, you want to hold to truth for that reason. But hold to truth so that you can call to mind who God is. Sure, so that you'll run from sin. But so, so that you'll have hope as you face the darkness in this life. Brothers and sisters, perseverance through trials doesn't come through what you are seeing or through what you are feeling. Perseverance through trials comes through what you are believing. And believing the truth makes all the difference. Mark Vrogop, in his book that I, I mentioned in our beginning of the series, he said it this way, this is where biblical lament is transformative. It not only, lament not only gives you voice to the pain that you feel, but it also anchors your heart to the truths that you believe, or at least are trying to believe, as the dark clouds linger. Lament anchors our hearts to the truths that we believe. I want us to give our thoughts to four truths in Lamentations 3. Two today and two next Lord's Day. First, the truth of God's waiting plan. Please follow along as I begin reading at verse number 21. This I call to mind, therefore I have hope. Here it is. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is Thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in Him. The Lord is good to them that wait for Him. To the soul that seeks him, it is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke of his youth, in his youth. He sitteth alone and keepeth silence because he hath borne it upon him. He putteth his mouth in the dust, if so be there may be hope. He giveth his cheek to him that smiteth him. He is filled full with reproach. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, yet will he have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he doth not afflict willingly or grieve the children of men. I want us to think specifically on verses 25, 26, and 27. In our English translations, we don't see the same letter of the acrostic, all right, of, of each triad. But we do see the same word that represents that Hebrew letter. The word for 25, 26, and 27 is good. So see it again, verse 25. The Lord is good to them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. It is good that a man both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. 
It is the same Hebrew word that we would find in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 in the creation account. It's described as being good. All that God made was described as being good. God made the plant life and the sea creatures and the birds and the reptiles and the plants, stars, male and female. God created everything and God looked at it and said, Behold, it is very good. Maybe we can even draw the parallel here that in Lamentations 3, the same word is being used as God is recreating Israel after the destruction of Jerusalem. The poet tells us that God is good. God is good in all of his ways. The poet tells us that God is good, that it, that it is good to wait on the Lord. So here's the truth of God's waiting plan. It's talking about confidently and without complaint waiting on God's help. It's willingness to accept hardship and trial, knowing that they will strengthen faith in the end. Now don't be confused. Waiting, uh, waiting doesn't mean waiting for the circumstances to change. God doesn't need to change your circumstances in order to remain good. God is good regardless of your circumstances changing or remaining the same. Waiting is not wasting. Waiting is hard because we are curious. We want to know what's happening. We want to know the purpose of the trial, of the darkness, of the hardship that we are in. We may not be doing anything while we wait, but God is. It's one of the sermons I preach to my kids. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your summer. Don't piddle away opportunities God has given to you. Wasting is one thing, but waiting is something totally different. We say waiting is boring, or waiting is difficult, or burdensome, or not understandable. God says waiting is good. Waiting for God is good. We don't always feel that way, though, do we? While we're waiting, we're not necessarily thinking that this is a good thing. Waiting for a specific temptation to be removed. A thorn in the flesh. We pray and pray and pray for it to be removed. Waiting for a baby to be added to your family. Waiting for the injustice of, of social prejudice, racial prejudice, to be removed from our community. Waiting for a spouse. Waiting for abortion to be finally illegal and removed from a, from a, a nation. Waiting for financial stability. Waiting for God is good. And whether or not we can see God changing the situation, or whether or not we can feel the situation, the circumstances changing, when we believe this truth, that waiting is good, we'll persevere in the trial. Because our perseverance in trials doesn't come through what we are, we are looking at or come through, coming through what we are feeling. Perseverance in trials comes through what we are believing. And believing truth makes all the difference. God says, waiting on him is good. I think about people like Joni Erickson Tata, who was spent a lot of time waiting on God. As a young lady, she was paralyzed. She spent her life waiting, knowing that it will not be until eternity that she is healed in that way. But her waiting has not been wasted. God has given her much ministry. Perhaps the truth that has helped her persevere, one of the many truths that has helped her persevere through trial, is that waiting on God is a good thing. Perseverance through trials doesn't come through what we see, what we feel. It comes through what we believe. One truth that Lamentations 3 tells us is the truth of God's waiting plan. A second truth that we can be pointed to is the truth of God's merciful plan. Lament 
dares to hope in the Lord. The poet said in verse 21, this, what I'm about to say in the following verses, this I call to mind. And here is the core of the book of Lamentations. Here is the foundation of the gospel. And here is the greatest hope for your trial. Verse 21, this I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. His hopelessness turned to hope because he remembered the Lord. Friends, that's why we come together every Lord's Day. That's why we gather. This is why Jesus is a big deal in every worship service. We come to this room, we come to this gathering tired and beaten down by our own sin and the consequences of sin's curse in our world and the consequences of other people's sin in our life. So we gather as a church, we come together to call to mind, to remind ourselves the work of the Lord, that because of his mercies we are not consumed, because that he is faithful. That's one reason you should prioritize this gathering every single Lord's Day. We also come to the table at the beginning of each month to call to mind the truth of what God has done for us through his one and only son, Jesus Christ. The basis for our renewed hope is God's great love. The poet says, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. Now, we should be consumed. We deserve to be consumed. We deserve God's full judgment because we are sinners. Every human being has rebelled against God. We are sinners by birth and by choice. We have turned our back against We have gone astray like stupid sheep. We have gone from our shepherd. But because of his great love, we do not have to be consumed. Listen to, to Charles Spurgeon's idea, his thoughts on God's love for his children. You have, you have not any notion how much God loves you. Dear brother, dear sister, you have never yet had half an idea or the tithe of an idea of how precious you are to Christ. You think because you are so imperfect and you fall so much below your own ideal that therefore he does not love you much. You think that he cannot do so. You have ever measured, have you ever measured the depth of Christ's agony in Gethsemane and of his death on Calvary? If you have tried to do so, you will be quite sure that apart from anything in, your, in you or about you, he loves you with a love that passeth knowledge. Believe it. God withholds judgment on everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord to be saved. He doesn't erase that judgment. He placed that judgment on Christ at the cross. God withholding judgment is the grandest display of mercy that there is. The poet said that God's compassions fail not. Or as, as the ESV says, his mercies never come to an end. Or the NIV says, his compassions never fail. Compassions, mercies. It's the Hebrew word hesed. I gave my daughter that, that name, that, that, that word hesed for her middle name. It's, it's powerful. It's a covenant, loyal love that cannot be broken. Speaks of God's faithfulness, especially as it relates to his children. 
I mean, Judah's sins were great. Judah was deserving of all the judgment that had come, and then some. They could have been totally wiped out and still not faced what they deserved to face. But just as God's hand of judgment had been upon them, he withheld more judgment and exercised his hand of mercy. Trials don't prove darkness in your life, hardships in your life, whatever the case may be. Trials don't prove that God is merciless. Rather, perseverance through trials proves that God is merciful. The poet describes God's mercy as unfailing compassions. Ironic, isn't it? Earlier, the poet was, was accusing God of faithlessness, but now he's pointing towards God's trustworthiness. Great is thy faithfulness, the poet says. This is a unique characteristic of God. God is trustworthy. God is trustworthy, my friends, completely. Who else can, who else can be completely trustworthy to you? I mean, nobody. You can claim that, that your adult child that cares for you or that your spouse, they would not fail you, but they are mere humans. God is God. He is completely trustworthy. You can trust God <coughs> to supply every one of your needs. You can trust God to never leave you, to never forsake you. You can trust God to provide a way of endurance through temptation. You can trust God to guide you in this life. You can trust God to be with you to the ends of the earth. You can trust God to accept Christ's sacrifice, Christ's death, Christ's payment on the cross, that he accepts that, that God accepts that in your place. You can trust God to to send Jesus back to earth to get you and to take you to a place that Jesus has prepared for you. God is trustworthy. God is completely reliable. The poet was calling to mind the truth that God was faithful. And there is no greater hope than to know that God is completely reliable. The truth that he is calling to mind to give hope in the midst of darkness. God is loving. God is merciful. God is trustworthy. God is faithful in that he is unchanging. The unchanging constancy of God serves as the firmest foundation for your hope in the future. Friend, God's mercy is stronger than any darkness that enters into your life. Anything. His mercy is form-fitted for your trials. His mercy is based on his unconditional love for you. His mercy is a manifestation of his unchanging, perfect character. His mercy never comes to an end. His mercy is not generic. It's for you specifically. His mercy meets you where you are. The one true God of the universe has mercy for you tomorrow morning for whatever trial that's going to be unique to you. 
He's going he's gonna to have mercy for whatever trial that, that you face, and that you face, and that you face, and that I face, and that you face. God's mercy is new and it's specific for you. And then on Tuesday, when, when you're staring at darkness, the same darkness over again, or a, a new kind of darkness, a new kind of trial, there's more mercy. And then on Wednesday morning, when you wake up and you find brand new ways to screw up, there's more mercy. His mercy is new every single morning. Great is his faithfulness. That is our God. That is a truth, my friends, that you can hold on to and will see you through and enable you to persevere through trials. That is a truth that gives you hope in the face of anything that you might face in this life. Perseverance through trials, it doesn't come through what you're seeing or through what you're feeling. Perseverance through trials comes through what you're believing. And believing the truth makes all the difference. With the holidays approaching, we, we have to admit that it's indeed a fantasy world to think that the more calories we eat, the, the healthier, healthier we would be. And no matter how hard we hope, that laundry just isn't going to fold itself. Those kinds of things aren't worthy of spending too much time longing towards. However, friends, there is another world. There is another place that is real. And God is taking us there. So take hope. The truth of the matter is this. God's one and only Son is coming again. And he is going to take all of God's children to a place that he has prepared for us. It will be a place with zero disappointments because God has promised to make all things right. It will be a place of no more sadness because as we read earlier today, God will wipe away every tear. It will be a place of no more hunger because we will be with the one who is the bread of life it will be a place that has no darkness. It will be illuminated by the one who is the light of the world. It will be a place of no more death, but eternal worship of the one who is the resurrection and the life. It will be a place of no more wandering astray, because we will forever be with the good shepherd whose goodness and mercy followed us all the days of our lives. Memory plays an important role in our lament. So call to mind. Call to mind the truth of God, his promises to you. So while you live in anticipation of a heavenly life to another world, persevere by holding on to the truth, the truth of God's waiting plan, he is good, and the truth of God's merciful plan. Your sins are many, his mercy is more. Remind yourself of truth, teach yourself truth, hide truth in your heart, remind your brothers and sisters about truth, sing truth, May God help us to see the truth of the matter as we lament. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.